you know, you're, you're in partnership with these tenants, right? You want to be a good landlord. You want them to be a good tenant. So I always tell people to just get information. They're asking you for something, ask for something in return. Hey, I understand you want a rent reduction. Why is that? Oh, well, our sales have continued to decline. Okay, well, I have no problem working with you, but can you show me your sales? Can you give me the sales for the last three years? Most of the time, the tenant's not going to do it. If they don't do it, you know, how can you expect me to to just you know reduce your rent when I don't have any evidence? Hey, I want you to succeed, but you know I've, I've just got to make sure I'm making a, a good decision. Oftentimes, these landlords have debt on the property, so you can't just necessarily renegotiate the lease terms. Right. You're going to have to go to get lender approval and things like that. So. I'll oftentimes tell people, you know, kind of throw that back at the tenant as well. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would subscribe on Apple or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, if you would leave a rating and review, it'd mean a lot. And last but not least, you can check out all these episodes on YouTube. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I have my cousin, but also a great friend, Vince Nip, with me today. And Vince is the Senior Managing Director of Investments at Marcus Millichap. He's the number one uh, single tenant triple net broker in the state of Texas, almost clearing a billion in transactions since he started. Today's episode is awesome. We talk about the market for single tenant triple net assets. We talk about 1031s. We talk about what makes a good investment in this asset class. We talk about what makes a great broker and a lot more. So thank you for continuing to join me and I hope you enjoy the episode. Vince, thank you for joining me today. Appreciate you having me. Thanks for the kind words. Yep. It means a lot. Um, let's just start with kind of your story kind of into the industry and kind of what you've done over the last 15 years. Sure. So grew up in El Paso, as you said. Uh, my dad was involved in both brokerage and real estate. Yep. As you know. So I used to drive around with him when I was little in his pickup truck and we'd go to Dunkin' Donuts in the morning and he'd go to the P.O. box and he'd, he'd open up his mail and he'd have various checks from his real estate investments. So I used to always say to myself, I want to I want to grow up and do real estate because I thought I could just drive around all day and and cash checks. <laughs> I didn't actually realize what went into it, but uh, that was kind of my first exposure to it. And then his day job was brokering pecans. And so they came from a, a large, you know, nut company and past experience. And he was helping people buy and sell pecans. And I used to go with him to these meetings and go to these lunches where he'd have all these farmers with him. And, you know, I, I would just ask him, you know, why are all these guys having lunch with you? And he said, well, because they need me. I know the market. I know the prices. They want to sell product. And so that was probably my first exposure to the brokerage side of things. And, you know, I've always been one where, I, I kind of like to do things my way. I, I like the idea of of kind of driving around, having lunch with people and, you know, I guess maybe controlling a, a market or a product. And so that was kind of what got me interested in, in brokerage. So grew up playing various different sports, um, played tennis throughout high school. One and state. <laughs> <laughs> doubles. I'll, I'll throw it out. Doubles. It wasn't singles, but uh, yeah, my partner and I won state. Uh, 5A doubles 
our senior year. And then uh, our team was really good. These were all juniors that grew up uh, with me and we, we won state as a team. We got second, we got third. So it was a lot of fun. Um, then graduated, went to the University of Texas at Austin, worked for a good friend of mine that was in the real estate business. They couldn't afford to pay me, but I, I just wanted to get my feet wet. So I was, you know, I worked for free. I did a whole bunch of work for them. And then after uh, working for free, they said, okay, you're, you're, you're good. You're hardworking. And they started paying me. And they were doing mobile home park acquisitions, things like that. And it didn't really interest me. I've always kind of had an eye for retail, like driving by it. That's what, what my dad was invested in, various shopping centers. And then uh, one day, these brokers from Marks and Milchap walked in, you know, three-piece suit, binder, looked really cool. And, you know, they had the uh, attention of, of my two bosses. And I'm thinking, these guys are young like me. And you know, why are my bosses so interested in what they have to offer? So I sat in on the meeting and that's kind of when I decided, Hey, I'm going to go be a broker. Yep. So that was, uh, that was the beginning of it. So you, so you make that decision and then you move up to Fort Worth from Austin. Take me through a little bit about like the first years of being a broker. Cause a lot of people flame out in their first year or two. So like, what did you do? And then let's just talk about maybe as it's specific to Marcus Millichap and their process and why you kind of broke through and have been doing it for so long? So it's incredibly challenging. Um, obviously, it's it's a straight commission-based gig right out of school. And, you know, you really don't know anything. They've got a great training program. But at the end of the day, it's really on the agent to ask the questions and go out and really, you know, become a student of the game. It, yeah. it's, you, you can't just be successful by going to their training and doing a few of the little things. So, you know, my hours starting out, were probably 12 hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, I was a, I was a nerd about it. Yeah. I would read, I would look at leases. I would look at on-market properties, sold properties. I was talking to anybody and everybody. I was meeting with anybody and everybody I could, even if I didn't have a reason, I would, I would just honestly say, look, I'm, I'm new in the business. Uh, you've built a great portfolio. I'm going to be around, you know, probably not going to bring much value to you now, but let me buy you a cup of coffee. And so that was my, my focus really the first year was just meeting everybody Yep. and you, you don't make any money. So the first 18 months, I think I made $6,800. <laughs> so, you know, it, it isn't, uh, it isn't easy. You know, a lot of people that, that come in now and kind of from an outsider's perspective, they look at it and they, you know, they think that it, it's easy. They don't realize the, uh, the blood, sweat and tears you put in early on. So to, to your earlier point, a lot of people don't make it. Yep. Um, everybody says they're hardworking. Everybody says that they're, they're competitive and they're gonna, you know, do whatever they need to do, but inevitably people come in and, you know, think their ways better and, and don't really take to the coaching. So. And everybody I talk to, they are always building a database. What is it? Is it just an Excel <laughs> sheet or is this some like, what's the mythical database that all Marcus agents build? So. It it uh, it's changed a lot since I I first got in the business because it uh, excuse me it was Excel. I would I would sit here and I'd export records from the county appraisal district, you know, building square footage, lot size, parcel ID, ownership information, deed date, and because I was based out of Fort Worth, you know, my goal was know every single property in Fort Worth, retail oriented. So you'd export it and then you'd just sit there for hours at a time. So really, the first six months, that's all I did is I just you know, lived in Excel, researching owners, building my database, yeah. you know, adding phone numbers, calling, verifying, 
And so that uh, it's an ongoing process. You know, we still do it. We track the market. We look at every deal that comes to market. You know, if we don't have it in the database, I get a little upset with myself because I feel like we should have everything. But yeah. uh, as you can imagine, new development, you're not always going to have it all. So for sure, it, it's an ongoing process. Unfortunately, you know, I don't, I don't sit there hours at a time databasing anymore. We've we've got some really great analysts with us that yeah, yeah. that do that. And you have so many clients now. What uh, you can always tell when a broker's like just gotten in the industry and is calling you for the first time. And I, I, and I honestly try and be really nice and thoughtful and not just like totally shatter their dreams on the first call. Uh, what did Marcus teach you about like making the call? And like if, if somebody's listening here that might just be getting started, like how should they think about making those first calls? You know, you, you go through the training and they teach you the interest generator, bringing value, asking open-ended questions. And, and it's all true. I mean, it's, it's not. Uh, What's well, like an open-ended question? Um, why'd you buy this property? Yeah. Okay. Versus, Hey, I'm calling about this. Do you still own it? Yeah. So you just always want to get the client talking. And I think one mistake that new agents make, and I was guilty of it too, is you're nervous. And so you're, you're trying to create all this value and you're telling them everything <laughs> that, you know, that they should know. And at the end of it, you realize you haven't even given them a chance to speak. And yeah. so I was guilty of that in the beginning. And then I don't remember what it was, but one day I just realized that, you know, I need to stop talking. Yeah. And, and the reality is, they know you're new. You're, yeah. you're never going to be able to plan out every call. You're never going to be able to, you know, make them think that you're not right out of college. So, yeah. I mean, they can hear it from the second you call. And, you know, my script over the years has changed. You know, I started out Vince Nip, Marcus Milchap, focusing on this, you know, <laughs> on and on I've and never on. Sold a, I've never <laughs> sold the building, but you should so, let me sell yours. Well, and, and honestly, that was another thing. That's a, a thing I tell some of our newer guys is, hey, look, they, they know you're new. So don't try to trick them. Yeah. You know, don't try to to convince them or convince yourself that you know what you're talking about. It's okay to say, "Hey, look, I'm new in the business, but you know, I'd, I'd love to sit down with you." It's all about getting in front of people. Yep. You, you can't do business over the phone, and even with net lease, a lot of these property owners are out of state, so it's it's very difficult to just call somebody and and convince them why they should they should hire you. Now, every everybody's different. You know, some people do that, but right. All right, let's move into a, just a little. Let's let's start just like getting into kind of the business side of things. So, like I said in the intro, you really do. And you, and you said, like, your love is like driving around and seeing things. You have an eye for retail. So, what does an eye for retail mean? Like, what makes great retail? And is it tenant dependent? Or I know it's a big question, but let's just start there. You know, it's, it, it's all of the above, right? Tenant, location, uh, submarket, your rental rate, et, et cetera. But I think the most important thing, especially when it comes to, retail and single tenant specifically. So I, I used to do shopping centers. And about six years ago, I I started referring shopping centers out. I've got a business partner and we'll refer each other business back and forth. He'll refer me single tenant. I'll refer him multi-tenant. But okay. on the single tenant side of things, you know, the number one thing is is location. Um, yes, the lease matters. Yes, the tenant matters. All, all of that matters. But at the end of the day, I tell people when when you're theoretically putting all your eggs in one basket with one tenant, you've got to look at the real estate and, and the location. Right. So does it have good access? Is it located at a signalized intersection? You know, is it is it big enough that if your tenant went out, you could redevelop it and put a different building or you landlocked, it, et cetera. So I really think the biggest thing is just location. You know, you want to buy something. And and to me, the tenant and the lease and the income is is a perk. But at the end of the day, you know, if something ever happens, you want to know that you're going to have a line out the door of new tenants that want that building. Right. And and 
if it's an amazing location, are, are there certain part? Are there certain aspects of a location that could make it just not viable? Is it like the size of the site or the size of the drive lanes, or kind of what happens when you have a great location but it only fits like one user? Yeah, so that's another thing that a lot of people worry about. Some people won't do these little oil change facilities because they're on you know, a half acre and they're a little tiny building and that's always what it's going to be. You're never really going to be able to to redevelop it. So there's some buyers that won't buy those for that specific reason. I'm a big fan of you want to be better off if your tenant leaves. Now, it's hard to always say that, but if you buy a building that's 4,000 square feet, but it sits, it happens to sit on an acre and a half, you know, someday if that 4,000 square foot tenant goes away, you might be able to get two pads out of it, two buildings on it or add on or something like that. So that's something I always look for. Why do you uh, put all the multi-tenant buildings with your partner? Is it just so you can stay laser focused? So when I first started, I'd work on anything retail related <laughs> uh, because, you know, you just want to get paid and and you want to have a track record and say, hey, I've done this deal. So, you know, my very first listing assignment was a piece of land. Actually, I think my first three listing assignments were land. And I called every developer and every single person I could and never sold them. Um, and then I realized, you know, I'm not a land broker. And so I shifted focus and, and then obviously quit doing land. And that's another thing for new agents. I think it's easy to get distracted. Somebody says, hey, I know you called about this, but I have this other project, which I, I've learned to mean was a problem and, you know, really a project more than a paycheck. So right. I would, um, you know, I've kind of shifted my focus and started just really focusing on the buildings. Yep. So, um, God, I forgot the question. Well, the question, the question is. <laughs> Why did you, why do you move all the multi-tenant oh, yeah. to another group? And is there a reason because of the, the, the nuances between single tenant and multi-tenant? So I'm ADD, I'm fast paced. I like a lot of deal action, deal flow. Shopping centers take a little bit more time. Yep. So with single tenant, there's one lease, one tenant, one rental, uh, one rental stream, um, one estoppel. And that's, that's really it. Um, with shopping centers, you can have five estoppels, five tenants, all different lease structures, and it's just more cumbersome. Uh, with shopping centers, you're typically responsible for roof structure, parking lot. There's more maintenance involved. With single tenant, it's a little bit more passive, depending on the lease structure. But a lot of the times, the tenants will maintain these things. So for me, it was really more about volume. Yep. Um, in the first cycle, when I started in 2007, and everything crashed in 08, I saw a lot of guys that that made no money. I mean, there was no deal flow. Everything shut down. And so I kind of told myself, I'm never going to make that mistake. I want to try to close as many deals as I can so that when the next recession comes, even if my volume's cut in half by 50%, I can still eat and pay the rent. Yep. So that was kind of the shift I made was I'm just going to do single tenant. I'm going to bump up my volume. I can, I can, you know, get through these quicker. Yep. And so that's why I made the decision to refer it. And and in all honesty, I just didn't really, it didn't excite me all that much. Yeah. And I'd rather, you know, put my heart in something that I really like. And and the partner that I have in this is he, he's number one in the state and one of the top, I think, two or three guys in the country. So it's easy to refer it out because I know he's going to get it done and yep. um, vice versa. He, he wasn't 100 percent passionate about single tenants. So it was just kind of a natural um, made sense for us. All right. Let's talk about buyers and sellers. Who are the typical like owners of this stuff? Is it groups that hook up with Starbucks and build them 50 a year. And those are your clients. Is it, you know, families that just own one or two of these as investments? Like who's the, we're going to talk about the typical seller and then the typical buyer of this stuff. 
So um, the answer to your question is is all of those people. Mm -hmm. So we do do a lot of work with developers that uh, build for specific tenants, Starbucks, Dollar General, et cetera. And yeah. that's kind of their pipeline. And they might they may build for two or three tenants, but we do a lot of work with them. And so their goal is to you know get the product out, sell it quickly. And the buyer of those is typically a private family. Um, you know, funds and groups are out there, they're buyers, but they typically want a discount, which is okay. And there's there's developers that sell to sell to funds, but really what we're known for is maximizing value, driving price. Right. And and we do that with just your private client buyer. So yep. a lot of California family offices, New York, Florida, all over the country. And so those are the people that are typically passive. They're selling out of another asset. They want to put their money to work. They're looking for something safe, stable. They don't want uh, to deal with roof leaks, parking lots, anything else. So they'll typically accept a lower return uh, for that you know, freedom. Yep. So that's that's who we do a lot of our work with. And then again, most of these people are buying something with a 15 or 20 year lease. As that lease term starts to burn down, you know, they'll they'll typically sell and transition into something with a newer, longer term lease. And so again, we'll we'll do a lot of of private family sales as well. So is that what drives the majority of sales is families thinking, all right, we got five years, seven years left on this lease. Let's turn it now. We've We've captured a few rent bumps. Let's turn it now and get into the next thing. Yes, um, because in in single tenant net lease, as that lease term gets shorter, yeah, in in theory, the value of the property goes down because right. the buyer pool is is smaller. There's more people out there that want a fifteen or twenty year lease versus a three, four, five year lease. Yep. Now there's buyers out there that that feed off of those three, four, five year leases because typically there's a discount, you know, for taking that risk when you're going to have some rollover in the next three or four years. Um, I, I tell people that options are really only to the benefit of the tenant. They don't do you any good as a landlord. So why, e even though you may have an option in, in four years that says my rent's going to go up 10%, if the tenant calls you and says, yeah, you know, our, our sales are going down, we, we can't renew. In fact, we need a rent reduction. Oftentimes, what, what are you going to say? You know, when you live in, in California, Florida, you haven't seen the property. Yeah. You don't want a vacant building. You're so, like, okay, we'll take it. Yeah. So, you know, oftentimes you take it. And, and again, it's, it's a chess match. These so these tenants, honestly, probably ask all the time. They're, they're, they're notorious trained. for it. They're trained for it. They hire third party people that go out and negotiate rent reductions on their behalf, and that's how they get paid. So it's just it's just a big cycle. But you know, back to my my earlier point: location, location, location. If you're sitting on a great location and you know that you could you could backfill it with 15 other tenants and and potentially even get more rent, it, it helps to be able to say, you know, that's all, it's all right. You can either take your option or leave. And there's people that'll play that game. So what's the, if, if you're a private family in California, should you, and, and you got a tenant that's kind of, you know, playing the game with you, what do you do? Just call a leasing agent and say, Hey, shop this around for 30 days and tell me who in the market would take this before I get back to Starbucks or whatever. Yeah. Most of the time that's what they do or, or they do nothing and they just, they just accept the reduction. Yeah. But what I, what I often tell people is we're more than just investment sales, or at least I look at myself more as a partner and advisor. Sure, I can I can sell anything, but I've also got a ton of information. I look at this all day, every day. I know where rent should be. I know where, you know, tenants, you know, their rent may be above market, below market. And so oftentimes we'll come in and just advise them and say, look, here's all the rent comps. Here's everything in the market. You don't need to reduce it. Right. And so we'll kind of arm them with this information. We don't charge for it. I'm just trying to build a relationship. And in the event we can solve their problem and they decide to sell it, 
it, it makes winning that business a lot easier because you've actually just created a, a whole bunch of value for them. Yep. Who are the buyers that are buying with two to three years left on the lease? Is that value add folks, more opportunistic folks? Yeah, people people that are trying to chase yield. Um, some of these people have relationships with these tenants where, you know, they know that the tenant isn't going to relocate or, or or move or close down. So they'll buy these to get that little bit higher return. And then they'll hold the tenant's feet to the fire in two or three years and make them take their option. And then they'll typically sell out at that point or they'll just hold it. So again, the longer the longer the lease, typically the lower the cap rate, lower return. Shorter the lease, more risk is perceived, the, the better return you can get. So there's some people out there, they call it blend and extend. Mm-hmm. Um, there's people out there that play that game and that's what they do all day, every day. And, and that's okay. There's a business model for that. Those deals are getting harder to find. And with the market and the environment that we're in today, cap rates have compressed so much uh, as a result of COVID and everything else that there's really not even that much spread anymore. Right. There, there used to be a spread. It used to make sense. Yeah. Uh, but now people have, have realized, hey, if I can get 50 basis points better uh, or 75 basis points better, uh, I'll, I'll just buy this and take my take the risk because there's so much liquidity out there. Yep. And so- you know, again, for the the people on the call that that maybe don't understand that is, you know, there's really not enough spread to renew the lease, then sell it, pay your closing cost commissions, and actually, yep. you know, have a return. So before there used to be a, a much wider gap, whereas, you know, you might have 150, 200 basis points of spread. Right. What do you What do you like when I think of single tenant buildings, and I think of a major metro, it makes a, a ton of sense to me. And then you go to these, you know, especially more prevalent probably in Texas, but you go to these smaller towns and cities where there's like a Dollar General and a Jack in the Box and a Long John Silvers. How do you value those differently? How do you value a Dollar General differently in, say, great spot in Dallas versus Andrews, Texas? I think you have one in Andrews, Texas. Yeah. We don't have to talk about that one if you want to have another one. <laughs> no, we can, we can talk about it. Um there's there's always been a difference in price and yield and demand in a primary market versus secondary versus tertiary. Yep. Um, the tertiary stuff isn't in demand as much right now. Now, there's still buyers for it. Don't get me wrong. But if you're in a primary market, you might see a 100 basis point difference just because it's in Dallas, it's in Austin, it's in San Antonio, it's in a major market. Right. And so... Um, there's always been a slight difference. I, I think that the premium you can command in a primary market today, I've never seen anything like it. We just closed a, a Dollar General here in DFW last week at a 499 cap. Wow. Which is is wow. crazy. <laughs> crazy. Um, Good location? Yeah, great location. Yeah. But at the same time, it's still a, a Dollar General with a flat 15-year lease. Right. So- you know that that's not there's not even infl- in, inflation bumps not not until you get to the options okay and, and like I said you an option is just an option doesn't mean the tenant's going to pay that 10 percent bump yeah um secondary markets you're probably five and a half cap to six on something like that in today's market so about a 50 basis point difference uh but buyers have gotten smart they've realized that when a recession comes or if my tenant leaves and I bought something in the middle of nowhere I, I could potentially be screwed. Yeah. So so now they've they've gotten a little bit smarter and want to be in those primary markets and they're willing to pay more. And, and I think it's a smart bet. Now there there is still a market for, you know, the secondary tertiary markets because you can get a better yield. And as long as you're buying at the right corner, it's the right economics, I still think it can make sense. And who's buying that stuff? Same people, just 
if the deal's better, I'll go to a tertiary if it's. Yeah. So with with some of these other markets, obviously, the rents are a lot lower. Yeah. And so therefore, the price is is lower. It's a little bit more affordable. So sometimes people will have these large exchanges and they'll buy three or four properties and they may have a million, million and a half dollars left over. And so they'll just kind of throw it in. You know, they'll kind of look at it as a portfolio. They'll throw it in, take the risk because they don't want to pay the capital gains. Right. In a market where rents are growing quickly, like let's just say you signed a 20 year lease in like 2010. The odds are the current rate that tenants paying is so far below market, even with 3% bumps, even if you had 3% bumps. But let's just say you have another 10 years left on the lease. Are there a lot of buyers that'll buy something on like a two cap? Because they're just, even with seven to 10 years left, if that delta is so large, then they'll just wait it out. Absolutely. Um, You know, there's all different types of buyers. Most people aren't that patient. They're not going to wait seven to 10 years. Sometimes buyers will even wait longer, but typically it's your your high net worth family office that's that's more concerned with wealth preservation than just hey I, I need a return in the next five to six seven years. Yeah, it, it's one of those situations that I said where you want your your tenant to leave right. because you're going to be better off because you're going to be able to go get two or three times the rent. So, you know, there's a lot of properties out there, and and from my standpoint, that's what I like selling, and and that's what I'm really good at driving the value because. I can look at something like that versus a lease that was signed today and the rent's 30% cheaper. Uh, therefore, my my asking price is going to be 30% cheaper than a new product. Right. So I can I can drive my cap rate down. I can command more of a premium because, uh, again, I'm a broker, so you know, yeah. I can sell against anything. But it's, it's hey, look, you know, you're buying this for a million five versus new construction today is going to cost you two and a half million. It's the same product, same tenant, same market. I mean, I would accept, you know, half a percent return, 50 basis points less all day if I could own something like this, because you're never going to get hurt. And so that's one way we can really drive value for some of our clients that have these older deals to where they're not really, you know, taking a discount. Are and, all and, and you mentioned two caps. So one of my favorite deals, we sold um, Let's hear it, an baby. Albertson's ground lease in Dallas several years back. And I kind of looked at this and we were in competition with two or three other brokerage shops. And it's that exact uh, model that I just talked about. This lease was signed back in the 50s. So they were paying something like $2 a foot in rent. Now, they had a whole bunch of term and everything left to go. And most of these brokers uh, proposed on it based on a cap rate. I came in and I said, this isn't a cap rate deal. There's going to be somebody out there that sees the value of controlling six and a half acres in Dallas, even if they have to wait 15 years. And we ended up selling it, I I think, at a two cap. So um, we had 38 offers. It was, I mean, we knocked it out of the park. We we generated a million dollars more in proceeds than the next broker that we were in competition with. So you, you've got to be able to to shift and kind of look at deals in a different way. What's the difference between a, like, talk to me about what a ground lease is versus just buying fee simple, the whole thing. So in uh, in a ground lease, you're you're just buying the ground. Okay. That's it. You're not, you're not. You buying, own the dirt. You own the dirt. You don't own the improvements. The tenant owns the improvements. With a ground lease, you don't get any depreciation because you can't depreciate land. Okay. Fee simple, you're buying land and buildings, so there's some, you know, there's a benefit of depreciation there. All right. Um, that's something else we can we can talk about is you know what's better, buying a ground lease or fee simple. Let's talk about it. And and my response is it depends on the lease and the rent and the location. Let's right? talk about it. Most buyers think that a ground lease is the ultimate hands-off investment. Hey, if it's a ground lease, I don't have to do anything. 
And that's true because the tenant comes and builds the improvements and they lease the dirt from you. But an absolute net lease on a fee simple property is the exact same thing. You never do anything. But the difference is you actually get the uh, benefit of depreciation. Right. So I would almost argue against it's it's better to you know buy these fee simple absolute net deals than a ground lease in today's market. Okay. Historically, the benefit to buying a ground lease was the tenant would come build the building at their own improvements. Therefore, the ground rent would be a much lower payment. Right. And so typically you would you would end up being able to buy a ground lease for a lot less than you would a fee simple asset. Right. In that instance, it made a lot of sense because if your tenant left, the building refers back to the landowner and in theory it should be worth more. So we we would sell some ground leases for a million dollars. Yeah. But there were a million and a half dollars worth of improvements. Right. So if the tenant defaults, you know, you've taken your million dollar investment to theoretically two and a half million dollars because you now own the building. Yep. But in today's market, these ground rents have gotten so high, cap rates have gotten so low, you're paying three or four million dollars for a ground lease. Yep. It, it's it's no longer below replacement cost. So you've got to be careful with with ground leases. And so and, and like you just said, if a tenant leaves, they just leave the building and here's the yep. building. Yeah, you don't you don't really want your tenant to leave and you know have a four million dollar fast food restaurant. What 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 usually happens when that happens? Do, do the the landowners just demolish it and take it back, or they? You know, I, I've seen it a number of different ways. Sometimes, yeah, they'll scrape the building and and ground lease to someone else, maybe a bank or you know something something like that. Or other times, they'll just get another tenant that'll come in and backfill it. We sold a Taco Cabana, great hard corner freeway location a few years back. They started closing stores, ran into some issues, and now Raising Canes is taking it over. So sometimes you can end up better off. Sometimes it gets yeah. worse off. You, you know, again, it comes down to location. If if the market moves, if you were in front of a Walmart and all of a sudden Walmart relocated to the other side of town and now you're sitting in front of a, a vacant box and the market shifts, you know, you're, you're probably not going to better your position. If just on in that instance, if Walmart's leaving, do they usually surprise all the 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 retailers up front or they're usually kind of in cahoots and they kind of know it's coming in advance. No, I don't I don't think they they tip them off. Yeah. Um and there's there's rumors out there that Walmart has never closed a super center. And and I think that's true, but I know they've relocated them. Yeah. So I think it's uh <laughs> I think it's kind of a a marketing thing. It's but. a marketing thing. Let's talk about leases just in general. Um I guess the the first question are all of these leases, you know, you think of the Starbucks and the Dollar Generals and the Raising Canes and my favorite Burger King. Are they all pretty much the same lease or does everybody come at it differently? What What's the, your favorite? Why is Burger King your favorite? Because we're from El Paso and that was like close to Coronado High School. And that's where we grew up going. And Taco Cabana was on the other corner. Oh, so yeah. I, I love Taco Cabana. I love um, Taco Cabana. You know, to a certain extent, most of the leases are the same. Each tenant has their own lease form. But but over the years, they've kind of gravitated to this absolute net lease model where they know that the owners don't want any, you know, any involvement. Right. So there might there might be some provisions that are different amongst the leases. But for the most part, they're they're pretty boilerplate. You know, it's it's evident that the tenant's responsible for all maintenance, the roof, et cetera, where they differ is some tenants will report sales. Some don't. Some might have a percentage rent clause where others don't. Um Describe a percentage rent clause. So, and I don't see it as much as I used to, but but back in the old days, tenants would would have a fixed rental amount right. and there'd be a percentage rent override on gross sales above a certain amount. 
And for a long time, that was that was really great for you know the landlord because as the tenant's business would grow and inflation kicked in, you know their rent would, in theory, continue to go up for forever. Uh, in today's market, tenants have gotten smarter. They don't want to report sales because they don't want their competitors to know what they're doing. And and I think really they just want to know what they're paying for the next five years and not have this moving target every year as they continue to grow their footprint and they've got thousands of locations. So most tenants have have kind of negotiated that out of their leases. And there's some old leases out there that have it. When they come back at renewal, they'll say, look, we'll we'll raise our rent, but let's get rid of that percentage rent clause. Yeah. Because that's valuable information. And that's that stuff I thrive off of because Again, in the example of somebody who has two or, two or three years left and the tenant says, I may leave, you know, if somebody calls me and says, hey, well, the tenant's doing two and a half million dollars in sales and they're paying 75000 in rent, I can easily say they're never going to leave. And so when you have that information, you can kind of use it against a tenant. Yeah. It, it helps your position. So, again, they don't, they don't like that either. Let's say a tenant's not on percentage rent, but they say they're going to leave. I guess the owner can always ask, but just say, hey, show me your sales. Oh, yeah. And and that's another thing we tell everybody is I tell people to, you know, you're, you're in partnership with these tenants, right? You want to be a good landlord. You want them to be a good tenant. So I always tell people to just get information. They're asking you for something, ask for something in return. Hey, I understand you want a rent reduction. Um, why is that? Oh, well, our sales have continued to decline. Okay, well, I have no problem working with you, but can you show me your sales? Can you give me the sales for the last three years? Most of the time, the tenant's not going to do it. If they don't do it, That's you know, how can you expect me to to just you know reduce your rent when I don't have any evidence? Hey, I want you to succeed, but you know I've I've just got to make sure I'm making a a good decision. Oftentimes, these landowner uh, landlords have debt on the property, so you can't just necessarily renegotiate the lease terms. You're right. going to have to go to get lender approval and things like that. So. I'll oftentimes tell people, you know, kind of throw that back at the tenant as well. Okay. Real quick, back on the two and a half, I know it was kind of generic numbers, but you said two and a half million in sales, they're paying 75,000 rent. I know for sure they're not leaving. Is there a certain ratio that matters or what, at what number would you have said, okay, they might be leaving? So that's a good question. When it comes to these fast food and restaurant operators, you want to see a rent to sales in the six to 8% range. That's that's what we would say is healthy. Okay. When you start getting into 10, 11, 12% rent to sales ratio, they're not making as much money. It, yep. It's tight. So that's kind of the magic number. Um, okay. Obviously, if it's if it's three or 4% of sales, yeah. that, that's great for the, for the landlord. You know, they're never going to leave. Yep. So six to 8% is, is really where I would tell you is, is kind of where I would like to see it. Yeah. Now, in today's market, rents are getting pushed. We do sale leasebacks where you might structure it at a 10% rent-to-sales ratio. Yep. So, uh, again, buyers are, are willing to accept a little bit more risk. And that's a game for, for tenants also is, you know, when we're capping these at a $70,000 rent versus an $85,000 rent, that's a huge difference in purchase price or proceeds for the tenant. Yep. And so sometimes, you know, they may pay a little bit more in rent today to get more in proceeds because that proceeds, that pop happens immediately. So you, the, what you had just said, the two and a half million to 75, that's like roughly 3%. Okay. If you're a landlord and you know that, and you know that there's three or four years coming or three or four years, you kind of know what your next rental rate is going to be. It's basically like we can basically double rents and still keep them at six to 8%. Correct. That's kind of the easy formula. And, and I think another area where you can 
I'm, I'm, I don't mean take advantage, but just uh, capitalize on something like this is, is the tenant runs out of options. That's when, when the power shifts to the landlord, because yeah. at that point, the tenant no longer has an option to renew. So if you've got a rent to sales ratio of 3% and they may only have one option left and they come back to you, you may say, hey, let's recast this entire lease. I'll make you a fair deal now because I know your sales are great and I'll lock you in for another 20, 25 years. And was so, it almost unheard of that a, a tenant wouldn't have an option in their initial base, in their initial lease? Yeah, I, I'd say 95% do. You, yeah. you may find a random one-off kind of sale lease back or owner user that you know, we'll sign a 10 year lease and sell the building. Yeah. But typically that's because they're out in the 10 years anyways. Yeah. Um, but it's rare that you find something without options uh, on a new deal. Now you can buy stuff on the open market today that they're in their second or third option and they might only have one left. Right. And if somebody has been there 15 years and blown through three options, it's very likely they're going to keep going. I mean, at like what point is it? Is it purely a function of sales when somebody's going to decide to leave or maybe the area is just deteriorating or why do people leave? Yeah, I would say mainly just because the the market shifts. Yeah. You know, if a tenant has good sales, if they're still at, you know, what I what I call ground zero and there's traffic and it's vibrant, I don't see them ever leaving. Now, sometimes tenants outgrow their existing prototype. And then they may move. Okay. And and as their sales continue to grow, you know, they may go to a double drive-through model. Yep. So Dollar General is one where their prototype used to be seventy five hundred feet, eight thousand feet, eighty five hundred feet. They're now up to nine thousand, and they've got a ten thousand six hundred uh, square foot store. And as their sales have continued to grow, they've added grocery, they've added fresh produce, and so they may have the store that's doing gangbusters, and the rent to sales may only be three percent. But it's easy to pick up that building and, and and move next door. Now they have the latest prototype. It's new. Yes, they're paying a little bit more in rent, but in theory, their sales are going to grow too. Right. So you've got to be careful of that. But again, if you're at ground zero, yeah, there should be a line of of people out the door waiting to to take over that building. Right. All right. I'm going to get into kind of COVID lease changes, but before we get in that, if we're just looking at kind of a lease, besides kind of price and and you know term and a few other kind of of the standard is there anything you like to see in leases that if maybe if you were buying a, a deal or if you were selling maybe it's different on depending on who you are but something that stands out to you that's like this is what makes a good lease if you're a novice and you haven't seen one before i i like uh the sales provision clause. Yeah. And again, it's harder to find, but that's that's something that I think you can kind of ride that wave with your tenant. Yeah. You know, if you see their sales coming down three or four years in a row, kind of makes you question your investment. You can you can do some diligence, figure out what's going on, or maybe you decide, hey, you know what, their sales have gone down three years in a row. I'm gonna go ahead and sell it. Yeah. As long as there's still some term out on it, you know, there's likely another buyer for it. Right. So I like to see that and then, you know, rental increases. I think everybody's worried about inflation. With these single tenant triple net leases, they're typically fixed for an infinite amount of time. Walgreens yeah. is is one example that would sign a sixty year lease without any rent bumps. <laughs> so, um, again, I like to see rental escalations. If you can get annual bumps, I like it a little better. But you know, at minimum, bumps every every five years to keep up with that. And then, again, think about it with these. You know, I'll use Dollar General as an example. The lease is flat for fifteen years. You buy that at a six cap today with fifteen years. Well, it wouldn't be a six today, but just for yeah. example purposes, you buy it at a six, you own it for five years, you get no rent increases. 
and now it's got 10 years left, you're, you're no longer selling it at a six. You're probably selling it at a six and a half, seven. So you're actually going to lose money. Yeah. So, you know, I, I like rent increases and, and reporting provisions. If sales are down on a bill, on a, on a tenant, and let's just, you know, your typical kind of like mile stretch where there's just like 10 fast food restaurants or whatever. Is it usually that maybe all 10 of those tenants have sales down, like it's a market thing or is it an operator thing? Or maybe people don't like Burger King here like they do everywhere else. Like why do sales go down? And is it usually everybody's down together and everybody's up together? Good question. I, I would say it's a combination of all of the above. Mo most of the time, I would think that the tenants would would all kind of suffer together. Maybe there's highway construction. Maybe the freeway is under construction and they've closed down the the off ramp. So typically, yes, I'll kind of see everybody come down now. If it's if it's an operator error, then no, I think it's pretty much just the operator. And we've seen a lot of these restaurants that we sell where they just don't have a good operator. Yeah. They don't know how to how to run the business. They they can't control their their food costs, labor costs. And they just kind of run it into the ground. And, and literally overnight, you could see a new operator coming in and, and start to turn sales around. So I, I think it's really a combination. Yeah. But um, And then again, sometimes like if you think about Popeye's, for example, they were just kind of steady. I think their average unit volume was a million four, million five. And then they came out with that that fried chicken sandwich and and just literally, you know, blew the doors off. I, I think their average unit volume is two and a half to three million now. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and it's literally a result of that chicken sandwich. So again, sometimes these companies can pass things down and it, and it helps. So have, have you had the chicken sandwich from Popeye's? I know, but I'm probably going to get one this week. <laughs> I, I haven't either, but I've, I've heard it's incredible. So how much do you pay attention to the actual products that these tenants are selling? Because you've now mentioned uh, Dollar General's opening up produce. Popeye's has a chicken sandwich. This clearly matters a lot to you. It drives a lot. Yeah, of it, it is a is a is a broker. I mean, it's information that I need to know because I've got to understand what these tenants are doing to be able to justify why pricing or or yields may change right. out in the open market. Um, owners, you know, some of these people will will do the same amount of research. A lot of them like to get on Yelp, yeah, and look at the reviews. Yeah, you know, again, there, there's not really a whole lot you can do. I can't call the operator and say, "Hey, you've got bad reviews. The dining room's dirty." Yeah. Um, they're under a lease, but right. you know, that, that, you know, with, with social media and, and the amount of information that's available today, that, that impacts stuff. I've had people say, I'm, I'm not, I can't, you know, I want to withdraw my offer. They have all negative reviews. Do some of these tenants ever say, Hey, look, we're going to sign this lease. We know you're going to flip this building immediately, which means our triple nets are going to like double by next year. Do they just kind of bake it in or are there is there ever any demands that will sign this lease, but you can't sell the building or anything of that nature? Yeah, as you, as you can imagine, tenants will will ask for anything they can. And I think it's smart. Um, Starbucks in their lease has provisions sometimes that if the building is sold more than twice during the primary term, which is typically 10 years, they're not liable for the increase in, in taxes as a result of the sale. And so, yes, oftentimes these properties may be assessed for eight, nine hundred thousand, and then when they go sell for two million dollars, and the assessor takes it up to two million dollars, right? And their taxes double. Yeah, the tenant's not happy about it, but but they're sophisticated, and and with the new deals they're signing, I think they know exactly what they're getting themselves into, right? So there are some provisions in in certain leases like that, right? And and typically, again, it's a negotiation on both parts with these developers. Because they know they're going to sell it, they'll they'll make sure to say, "Hey, it can't be sold more than two times," right? Yep. Because they know they're going to sell it immediately when they finish development. Yep. 
we're going to get into COVID, post-COVID lease, but I had one other kind of question because you were talking about access earlier. And I, I, I think about sometimes when you're pulling off a highway and you're like, you're pulling off the off-ramp and there's no possible way from the time you get off that off-ramp, but there might be like a McDonald's right there. So you're going to have to make a loop somewhere. How much does access matter? Like I think of that Toys R Us out there on 30. Best location. I mean, it's boom and you're, it's impossible to get yeah, to. Yeah, you just can't get to it. So like maybe the question is more, uh, maybe it's consumer driven. I know it's important to landlords, but let's talk about access for a little bit. How much does it matter? And and will tenants or customers literally not go to a Starbucks if they have to make an extra loop around the block? You know, I think in a perfect world, if Starbucks could have perfect access or any tenant could, they, they would. Right. But there's just some instances where they've got to be in a market and yeah. they they can't get a better site. So yeah. they'll go to an inferior site. And yes, people will still go there. But if Dunkin' Donuts outpositions them and it's easier to get on and off and not make that U-turn and get back on the road, then then I think they do lose business to Dunkin' Donuts in that instance. But that's the stuff I nerd out on. I, I love it. You know, I love looking at an aerial photo and saying, oh, look at look at that off ramp. Look at look at this access. Oh, there's a light. Oh, curb cut. So I, I think it's huge. And again, it, you can relocate a tenant. You know, Starbucks may may move from mid block to a hard corner if it ever becomes available. Right. Quick Trip does it. You know, their old model they were they would take some mid block locate mid block locations, and now they're they're all highway, interstate, hard corners. Yep. And so they'll relocate an extremely profitable store just to just to take a hard corner. Yep. Seven Eleven, same thing. They used to have those little smaller postage stamp stores. They're they're doing bigger stores. They'll go to a hard corner. They'll pay more rent. So it's constantly changing. What about the all for one, one for all? You typically see these this new development. It's always like a Raising Cane's, a Burger King, a Chipotle. Are they all in cahoots or is everybody <laughs> looking to see where Starbucks goes and then everybody lines up behind them? How does this work? Yeah, I think I think these tenants feed off each other. Right. So in the, in the same instance of CVS and Walgreens, you know, you'll always find them across the street from each other or, or just down the street. And that's because they have the same customer, same client base. So Oftentimes it's not, hey, we want to be away from them. We want to be with them. And right. if you have a big shopping destination with all these food options, uh, I think that's why they like it. And, yeah. and really, I think they're following the developer. They're following the anchor tenant. And, you know, these brokers, I think, are in cahoots and say, hey, we're getting ready to do a deal over here. Um, so I really think it's just the sharing of information. Yeah. And I think they like it. All right. We've been living through a pandemic some of the, I, I would imagine, well, actually not. Maybe most of the tenants in this kind of stuff really never did shut down. They were kind of vital. Uh, but you hear a lot about retail leases changing and there's new requests. What things are people requesting now that they didn't before? And is this sticky going forward? Is it more short term and you've already seen it kind of wearing off? So the uh, answer to the first part of the question is, yes, I, I've seen some tenants try to throw in these new provisions that, hey, if there's a, a shutdown or, you know, uh, government forces us to close our doors, we get some rent abatement for 90 days, right. 120 days. You know, obviously, they'll probably ask for an in indefinite amount of time, but developers have gotten smart and said, look, you know, we'll play ball with you, but we got to limit it to 30, 60 days. So there's things like that where, yes, I've seen it in make it into some leases. I don't think it's affected pricing um, because I think the consumer knows that, hey, COVID happened. It could potentially happen again. I think there's some creative ways where you can say, look, if, if we're going to you know, abate rent for 
60, 90 days, we're just going to add it on to the to the end of the term. So you're not really losing anything. Right. So I haven't seen it really affect pricing. Yeah. Um, and I think it was a something that tenants were are conscious of and are going to ask for. But again, do I think they're not going to sign a lease because they can't have a, call it a COVID provision or some sort of protection? No, I think at the end of the day, if they want to be on that location, you're, you're probably still going to be able to make your deal with the tenant. And it hadn't affected cap rates on anything being sold with these new leases? I don't think so. Not in not in today's market. And then I think the second part of your question was, was demand for these tenants and did, did any of them shut down with Full service restaurants, a lot of them shut down. Yeah. Some of them weren't set up for takeout and delivery. But with most of the fast food, there was a 30-day shutdown. But then they ramped up drive-through. And for many of them, their sales went through the roof. So, yeah. you know, the result is now everybody thinks that, hey, you know, I need a fast food because I need to have a drive-through. Right. I don't want to take the risk on a on a full service restaurant. Right. How does drive-through and and uh how does drive-through and delivery is that changing the way these things are thought about? I mean, I remember Chick-fil-A down here on Montgomery Plaza, even when everything was open, they were still just doing drive through. I, I think it's it's huge for for these tenants. It's it's all about convenience. Everybody wants convenience. Right. And I think now people, if, if they're scared to get out of their car and go sit in a dining room, they want to just roll through that that pickup window. Right. So I, I think it's it's great to have. Um you know, my father-in-law is in the restaurant business and early on he he was always kind of saying, hey, we need to do a pickup window. Right. And at the time, you know, the the concept that he was with, you know, wasn't doing them. Right. And so he said, well, I'm just going to do it and I'm going to use it as a pickup window. And it, and it boosted his sales and it was great. Yep. And, and I think it's smart because then, you know, it, it just makes it more accessible for the next tenant if something should ever happen. So I, I think it's all about convenience now. And, and it's and it's increase sales. I mean, for a lot of these tenants, full service restaurants, those cap rates aren't as aggressive as they were, I would say, pre-COVID right. because people are still nervous about them. Health clubs, yep. not as good. Movie theaters, not as good. So so there's this idea out there of of what we call essential retailers, right? Fast food with a drive-through, Dollar General because they don't, they never close and they stayed open. And so that's another reason I think these cap rates have compressed so much is because now the demand has shifted from all these other things. I knew people that would never, ever buy a dollar store and now that's all they want. Right. So that that really dollar tree. Demand, yeah. yeah. Meyer Marcus has been right for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Now's a good time to own dollar stores for sure. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's a bit more on how Fort Capital utilizes the platform. Depending on how fast you read, you can look at our deal, approve our deal, sign our deal, and send money for a deal in under 10 minutes, assuming you've already understood what the deal is. Like the frictional cost of how that all moves through our system now is a matter of minutes, and it does not require any human interaction between that unless the investor wants it. We have investors that are in 15 different deals. They can go into their portal online, go to their profile, and everything they could want from every document they've signed to every report we've sent to every distribution we've sent every point of contact with them throughout the life of the investment is documented in one place 
You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. When you see like a McDonald's or something and, and they all are updating their storefronts, that's on the operator to do, right? It's not on the landlord like 99% of the time. It's usually the operator doing that. 99% of the time, but that doesn't mean they're not going to ask you for some type of contribution or rent reduction. So they may come to you and say, hey, um, our sales have been on the decline. We're willing to come in and remodel. We're going to spend $700,000, but we want a new lease and we want to drop our rent 20%. Why would anybody ever do that for a newer building? Well, because the tenant's going to come spend $700,000 and sign a 20-year lease. So in that uh. instance, maybe maybe the trade-off is worth it. There's still some landlords out there that probably say, no, that's all right. You can leave. Yeah. And then, you know, McDonald's or whoever it is will still do the remodel and still pay the higher rent. Is there ever um, like if Starbucks is going somewhere, they're going to make money. Like there's never at this point like a risk. And if they're shutting down a store, it's only because they have a better store down the road. Typically or, or over time, things change. Access changes. They move the on ramp, off ramp. Things like that can impact them. But but most of the time, I mean, these are really, really smart companies that that pay a lot of money to to figure out where they want to be. They look at the demos. I mean, this isn't just a, you know, throw a dart at the map. They they basically have their development list every year and they know exactly where they want to be. They've mapped it out. And then that's when the developer will go out and, and buy in these little territories. All right. There's some deals that sell that always like, I don't get it. And maybe you don't either, but it, that's just how the world is, where the rent is so high that when it sells, it's selling at like two times replacement cost. It's so damn high. It's like a joke. Yeah, I would agree with you. What ha like, what are you telling people in a transaction like that? So again, every buyer's different. Not everybody cares what I say or cares what I cares what I think about being right. able to replace something or the location. Some of these people are are just chasing yield. So in that instance, when you have something with an above market rent, it's it's more expensive than anything else out there. Typically, you've got to adjust your your cap rate, right? The return. It's going to be a little bit higher because now I'm trying to attract people to this asset because I know it's it's not at market. And so there's people out there that will still play the credit game, right? If if you're buying, you know, a, a McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, Starbucks, whatever it is, these are investment grade tenants. It doesn't matter what their rent is. They're going to continue to pay it and they're going to pay it for the next 10, 11 years. So some people will, you know, I guess what I say is forego the fundamentals mm -hmm. and just buy the return. Okay. And, and there's a game for that. Okay. Is there any up and coming tenants that most people don't know about that you have your eye on? No, not necessarily that I'm that I'm watching, but I do think there's an opportunity when there is an up and coming tenant or a new tenant to the market to to kind of take advantage in terms of better yield, right? The Chick-fil-A's, the McDonald's are always going to be a three and a half, you know, percent yield. Yeah. Um, but if all of a sudden you have some new concept that, you know, people haven't heard about, maybe it's a five and a half, six cap. Yeah. But if it's a 10 or 15 year lease, if it's a great corner, all of a sudden, hey, you've got some more yield there. So and, and as those tenants become, you know, more it, raising canes is a good example. When they first started their rollout, they were selling at seven and a half caps. Yeah, because people hadn't heard about them. People yeah. were like, "Oh, well, Chick Fil A is the, the the game in town." Yeah, and then little by little, they just kept growing, growing, growing. Now they're everywhere, and now their cap rates are 
you know, four, four and a half, yeah. five. And then obviously it, it accrues to the real estate owner, but Popeye's coming out with that amazing chicken sandwich ultimately made all the landlords of Popeye's chickens really rich too. Oh yeah. That's well, they're, kind they're, of yeah. a cool way to think about it. Well, I mean, their rent doesn't change. No, but it, it doesn't change it at the moment. Yeah, but it provides security and it, and it, you know, they can sleep better at night. Yeah, put maybe it that way. gave a little cap rate compression yeah. if they went to sell it. All right. If I lived in California and I was looking at a Starbucks in Texas and uh, I was afraid to fly and I didn't like 20, 20 hour drives. Basically, what I'm asking is if I had to do my due diligence without ever seeing this property, what do I need to be looking at? Um, you know, there's a lot of people that don't even come and look at it. That's what I, in your world, it's, it's probably a lot more of that than in most yeah. asset classes. Oh, for sure. Because the tenant's responsible for everything. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these people will just use Google street view and they'll rely on our marketing package. Occasionally I'll, I'll go out and, you know, hire somebody to refly the drone and do a video and kind of show them if they can't get on a plane. Um, but a lot of times they don't come out and see it. Yeah. Um, and on the other hand, there's a lot of people that, you know, they, they will get on that plane. They'll come in for the day and then they'll fly home. They'll just kind of look at it and, and, you know, feel out the area. Yep. But again, the, the people that want the Starbucks in DFW, there's not a whole lot of them. Yeah. So, you know, they'll, they'll typically just move on it. Yeah. yeah. And they'll look at the lease. Yeah. They'll look at the pictures. They might hire a local inspector just to go out and do the building and send them the report. Yeah. And, and for them, it's, it's, again, it's, it's passive. Right. Oftentimes we're we're selling to people who have sold out of apartments, who've sold out of office buildings, sold land, whatever it may be, and now and now they're coming to Texas because it's business friendly. Um and they want a, a five percent yield instead of a, a you know, because they're selling at a three or four cap in California, coming here and buying at a five. Yeah. And they don't have to do anything. It's it's music to their ears. Do ghost kitchens make you nervous at all about what you're selling? If if Chick-fil-A is doing half their sales out of uh, delivery and they just decide to start going into industrial warehouses, does that is that on your radar? You know, I've I've had people ask me that question and and are they ramping up? Do I think it's a viable business model? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's going to change the game for for some people. Yep. You know, Hooters is doing a new concept called Hoots where it's their wings. I mean, people you know, they, they go to Hooters for the wings and the beer and everything else, but right. really it's it's the wings. So right. they've got a new concept where they're going to, you know, 12, 1500 square feet and they're doing their wings and it's rolling out here in DFW. I think they're doing 40 or 50 locations. Damn. So you'll start to see those. So I think that that the model is changing. I think ghost kitchen ghost kitchens will have an effect on some of those things. Yeah. Um, but again, like the Chick-fil-A's of the world, the the Starbucks, I don't I don't see it impacting that. Yeah. I think it's more on the kind of the full service restaurants. You have some uh amazing clients, some of which I know, and um you've done over a, almost a billion dollars in transactions. Every now and again you get to buy your own deal or partner. What's your favorite deal you've ever done? So you know, I've got a, a very good client that has honestly just become a best friend I know. Um, and a mentor. And early on, he just, you know, he said, you, you need to buy real estate. And I believe in it. It's, it's, it's what I do. I love it. I think it's a great investment if you know what you're doing. And so I've been fortunate enough to, to partner with him on some stuff. My favorite deal. Um, Is it the 7-Eleven? 
Yeah, that, that that's one of them. <laughs> that's one of them. Probably the uh, walk me through whichever one you decide to pick. It, it was easy. They were paying, you know, eleven dollars a foot in rent, and you know they'll they'll pay sixty, seventy bucks a foot someday. Now that was one of those situations where I've talked about you're going to have to wait eleven years for the upside, but you can drive by it every day. You you know they're busy. You know they're never going to leave. They'll never get another permit to do gas on that street, and so it's it's what I talked about that wealth preservation. And so for me, being being younger, it, it's something I have to look forward to. So those are the types of deals that that I like. And in that 11 years, you're basically covering debt service. There's not a whole, maybe letting some cash build up in the account, but there's not really a whole lot going on for 11 years. And then it, it's it, like- It, it was a savings account is what that deal was. Yep. That's but in 11 years, it's a not necessarily life-changing, but yeah. it's going to be a big you, you own a You own a good asset and- you know, there's, there, that's one of those situations where there's no downside. What does a bank tell you when you take them a, like a flat deal for 11 years? They're like, look, as long as we're, our debt service is covered and it's 7-Eleven, it's good. Yeah. And and I think for them, they all have their model they have to, to hit. So as long as you can meet debt service and they know what it is and if you've got a relationship, you know, it's not going to excite a lot of lenders. But again, depending on the, the situation, you know, I think there's a, a lender out there for every deal. All right. I kind of asked a question and then I kind of answered the question for you. Was there another deal that you were going to talk about? <laughs> you know, we've got a, again, very, very small ownership percentage for me. I just, um, I'm a limited, but I, um, we bought a property down in Houston that was four acres and on one and a half acres was a CVS ground lease paying 160000 in rent in a market that they should probably be paying 400. So again, there's, there's, it's a long time before you get to that upside, but one, you know, they're never going to leave and we could probably sell the CVS and pay off the, the rest of the property and own it free and clear. So that's a pretty cool deal. What would you do with the other two and a half acres? It's, it's leased. There's oh, a shopping leased. center. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Got it. And, and you're not just in Texas, like you'll sell anything anywhere. Or are you just in certain states? So, so Texas is our backyard. Right. Um, a majority of our business is in Texas. I'd probably say 80% of it. Um, but we've sold in 30 something states. Yeah. And with these net lease assets, you can sell across the country. Um, and I've, I've sold a lot of stuff that I've never even seen. Yep. But it, it but it's the game. It's a 15 year lease. It's a 10 year lease. You know, the credit, you can kind of look at the the map and see the usual suspects. So, um, I can't, I can't remember the state count, but we're, we're 30 plus states and, yeah. um, but a majority of what we do is in Texas. Yeah. yeah. You've been at Marcus for fifth, I, I keep saying 15 years, but I think it's 15 years, maybe in 2022, you got there in 2007. Is there a reason why you've stayed there so long? Is there something that they're bringing you? You've always spoken so highly of them, but, but why is that? So really, at the, at this moment in time, it, it's more about the family, yeah. right? I've been there so long. These aren't my coworkers; they're they're my family members. So yeah. you know, we've gotten to know a lot of these people. We've we've gotten very close with them. Some of our senior leadership people we're very close with. Our wives are friends, and they really do a tremendous job supporting their agents. Yeah. And so with the uh, leadership change we had, you know, probably five years ago. Yeah. It was really focused more on the agent, right? Um, and, and again, things change and leadership changes and cultures change, but it, it's a tremendous culture. And like I said, it's just really a family. And, yeah. and they uh, they support me. I can, I can come in every day and, and know that uh, they've got my back. 
I, I joke with my manager, you know, who I meet with every week that, you know, yes, he's my manager. He gives me vis- uh, business advice, but he's also my therapist. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, it's, uh, it, it's just a fun business and, you know, sure. Yeah. I get recruited. I get offers all the time, but you know, at this point that this would be walking away from, from my family and something great. And as long as they support me and, you know, they continue to focus on the agent and the client and, and development and provide support. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I love it. And, and what is there? I don't, how many agents are at markets across the country? Oh, I'd say probably 2000 agents across 80 offices or in Canada now. And do you all have a way to share information and insight and Intel that keeps you kind of crisp? We do. So the company does a lot of of webcasts yeah. and there's a lot of collaboration, but we have our own kind of internal system right. for information sharing. And it's not a gimmick. It's not a, a sales pitch. It's, yeah. it's real. Yeah. When when you hire an agent, no matter where they are, they may be in, in Orlando, they may be in Oklahoma City. When you list with them, it goes into our internal system and all 2000 agents have the ability to see it, work the deal, yep. plug their clients in. We do a lot of um, you know, crossover buyers. So we may have somebody in New Jersey that just sold apartments. He picks up the phone. He calls me, says, hey, I saw your listing down in Texas. Walk me through it. So again, you're, it, it sounds like a pitch, but you're yeah. not just hiring me or just hiring one guy. You're literally hiring an entire team. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that that information sharing and that collaboration, again, is what makes us the best in the business when it comes to investment sales. Other people claim to have the same thing. I'm sure they do in a, you know, to a certain extent. But And all y'all do is investment sales. No leasing, no anything else. No, no leasing, no management. Um, li- like I said, you know, I, I look at myself more as an advisor. Do I have a lot of information? Can I advise somebody on a lease renewal? Can I arm them with information? Absolutely. Right. But yes, our core is is purely investment sales. You've been in the business for 15 years now. Is there anything that still like surprises you or shocks you or is there anything that you're still really excited about? You know, I get I get excited every day and and I think that that just comes down to uh competing. Yeah. I, I love to compete. <laughs> um I, I like winning business. I like um I like when a client tells me, hey, that was a great job. That that was the the best execution. I've been doing this a long time. Your team is great. So for me, that's what what excites me every day is yeah. is kind of gaining more business, winning more clients. You know, if I'm in competition on a deal with the example of of the Albertsons being able to sell it for a million dollars more than my competition, it just makes the repeat business easy, right? Yep. I don't have to compete anymore once I once I deliver. So that's what gets me excited. The the thing that continues to surprise me is today's market. Every time I look at this, I think, well, there's no way cap rates are going to get lower. Yeah. Oh, that, that's a record. Oh, uh, that's that's a one-time thing. And then the market just continues to compress. Yep. So we um, we just sold a Taco Bell franchisee. We put it on market at a four cap. Okay. We ended up with eight offers the first day and ended up closing in 14 days at a three, seven, six cap <sighs> on a franchisee. What and a franchisee means it's not owned corporately; yeah, it's owned not, by not, a local yeah, guy. Yeah, not not Yum Brands, just a, a franchise operator. What, good okay. good franchisee, but but still, I mean, that's just that's crazy. Okay, well, great opportunity for me to ask a question. The difference between a franchisee and the franchisor ownership: Are you underwriting the franchisee when you buy that? Oh, this guy owns twenty Taco Bells. He's been doing it twenty years. Clearly, he's great. How how do folks look at that? 
absolutely. So there, there's typically always a difference between your corporate credit versus your franchisee. Right. I think it's compressed in, in this market to where it, it, it almost doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. Historically, I'd say there was probably a 50 to 100 basis point difference. But in today's market, I mean, a corporate Taco Bell would sell at a four cap. And we just we just beat that with a franchisee. Yep. So, um, again, that, that came down to location, price point, rent. It, it was under a million five, which is also difficult to buy in today's market because rents are so high. Pricing's high. It's hard to find a good triple net asset under $2 million. So this being under a million five, I knew we'd be able to, you know, command a premium. And that was a deal that we were competing on. Even when I said, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get a forecast, they were like, are you, are you just telling us that because you want the listing? I said, oh, no, we'll, we'll execute. I promise. Did I think we'd get a 376? No. But I knew I'd get the four. So, again, I think that's just knowing the market, being in touch with, you know, what the supply is and, and knowing what people will pay for. So under two million total purchase price is a hot ticket item. Oh, yeah. Just because there's lots more transactions happening at lower price points. Yeah, and, and it's just as simple as, as the simple way to think about it is it's just it's more affordable. There's more buyers. There's more people out there with with money to buy something under two million than in the two to five million dollar range. Yep. So and those are typically your 1031 exchange people, private family offices people that have got some some funds left over from maybe a larger transaction. So it, it's difficult to buy under $2 million. Okay. So if you're under contract, once you've gotten the listing, you've got your buyer, you're under contract. I mean, what the hell can really go wrong during a contract? <laughs> so that's not a funny story. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> laughing, but um, you know, a lot can go wrong because we one time were selling a Capital One. Okay. And it was a huge, huge rent. Okay. And it was a big price point. We'd been through due diligence. Money was hard, everything. And then they announced that they were they were going dark. They and, announced like they were going to shutter the store? Yeah. Now, they were going to continue to pay rent for the next eight years. But, you know, selling a dark asset, who wants to buy that, right? It's going to be a developer or somebody that's going to, you know, retenant it in the eight years. But most of these people don't want to buy a dark building knowing their tenant doesn't want to be there. And so that was a um, a situation where the buyer was already pregnant with a deal, was moving towards closing, and there wasn't going to be an adjustment in price. Selling a, a dark asset that still has a lease in place for selling, you know, something that's open and operating is a big difference in pricing. So the 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 eventual buyer of that Capital One probably bought it and said, "Look, I, I'm sure they worked out something with Capital One that said, look, we're going to try and release it." Or does Capital One sometimes say, no, we want to keep paying. We might come back. Or usually if it's they go dark, it's like, hey, help us try and lease this. Yeah, thing. I think it's a it's a team effort. You know, do I think they want to pay for the next eight years? No. Yeah. Um, do I think they want out of the lease? Yes. So, uh, again, you don't have to take the buyout. I'm sure that they offered some type of buyout. You can work in tandem with them. You can hire a leasing broker. But the reality is they're going to hire their own team to go out and sublease it and try to, you know, bring you a replacement tenant. So it's not always a bad thing. Yep. You, you don't really have to do anything. You can still collect the rent for the next eight years. Yep. And they've closed, you know, a significant amount of branches here in Texas. And we've sold a, a bunch of these that are have been going dark. But again, the, the yield is a little bit higher because it's a little more risky. You know your tenant's not going to be there in four, five, six, seven years. But a developer can come in, cash flow, put debt on it, meet the debt service requirements. And they basically have seven years of income to figure it out. Right. So again, there's there's different buyers for for all types of deals, and yep. and I, I like those if the if the real estate's good. 
How how much volume are you expecting for the rest of 2021, given the 1030 or given the possible tax change at the end of the year? Are you seeing an abnormal amount of volume, same as normal? What's no, the last I few mean, the market is, like? is crazy. I've never seen it like this. And, and I think everybody is scrambling to kind of make their moves before any sort of uh, changes occur with the 1031s or taxes, anything like that. So there's just been this flurry of, of deal flow. Yeah. Um, and right now there's a, a supply issue. And so, um, you know, for us as a team, we've closed 80 million this year and we still have 19 deals that are under contract and that's probably another 90 million. And then we still have, you know, 60, 90 days to close out this year. And that's the stuff that'll all close. So, you know, we might get to 200 million as a team this year, which would be our best year ever. That's unbelievable. So, oh, it's it's and our buyers, our buyer is a lot of that driven by the tax rate change. People are scared about inflation. All of the above. Yeah. And I think that there's there's so much cash out there. I think during the the shutdown, you know, people were were hunkered up, not doing anything. They were they were remodeling their house and, you know, fixing their garden and things like that. So there's just a lot more disposable income out there with all the stimulus money. Well, these aren't the people buying real estate, but um you know, I just I think that they've been sitting on the sidelines and now they're looking for something that can weather the next storm. Yep. So stock market took a big hit. I tell people buying these triple net investments is a lot is a lot like investing in bonds. But the difference is your collateral is a piece of real estate. Right. So as long as you buy good real estate, you're always going to have something. Yep. All right. A couple more questions. Um, maybe one or two more. I looked at a deal that I've looked at all. I If you're not on Vince's newsletter, you need to be on his newsletter. He sends listings out every week and tons of awesome uh, insight into retail. But I always look at the deals, even though I'm not a retail guy. We've talked all about the credit tenants, but I've seen you sell like like a I'll call it like a party center. It's got like a stage. It's got food and beverage. I can picture families coming there and spending tons of money, but it's like this big piece of land. It's kind of few small buildings on it. I'm trying to paint the picture here. How do you sell something like that? Like who's going to buy that? And is that typically a percentage of rent deal to make it work? So, you know, most of these, again, we'll partner with developers on the front end or with, with owners that are signing these leases. Most of the people that are buying these want to know what their return is for the next 25 years. Yeah. They don't want to buy something on percentage rent or this future dream. Yeah. Um, because what if the concept fails? What if, you know, they never hit that percentage rent? Right. Right. So it's it's hard to put a value on it. It's hard to cap it. It's hard to get somebody to accept it. So oftentimes we're we're just advising these these developers or these these owners just, just bake it into the into the lease. Whatever right. they think they're gonna do come up with a number that everybody can live with and that's what it's going to be for the next five years and you're going to hit these these types of escalations so the buyers for these again your your return is going to be a lot better on something like that versus buying the chick-fil-a the mcdonald's the auto zone just because of the credit right but again if like you said a lot of these can make sense because they're sitting on two or three acres a again depending on what your basis is it, it can just make a lot more sense and in that instance you know your your cap rate I think I know the deal you're talking about is going to be six plus yeah, yeah. versus okay. a three and a half or a four. Right. So it's just a lot more attractive from a borrowing standpoint, yield standpoint. You can still be in a major metroplex. Okay. All right. One more question. 
uh, if I was getting into the industry today, you'd mentioned some books, maybe some things you did early on. Like, what are you telling folks right now if they're getting in the industry today, how they need to be thinking about it? Um, a lot of reading. You know, for me, I, I studied the market. I had alerts set up every listing that came to market in, my, in Texas, in my backyard. I was logging in Excel and I would just study these cap rates and I would get a feel for, hey, here's four Whataburgers on market. All of their rents are between 75 and 90,000. And I would just study these and look at the numbers and the data so that when the next one came to market, I knew how it would be priced. I knew what to expect in terms of price point rent. So for a lot of the new people getting into it, if, if you want to get into brokerage, I just collect this data. I analyze it. I still do. People are surprised. Like I'll go on a meeting with, with one of my partners. And this guy will say, oh, yeah, you know, we, we bought this deal in Austin on 35. It had this tenant in it. You probably never heard of him. And I'll say, oh, yeah, that was that building with what you want. And you bought it for, what, $3 million? And, <laughs> you know, my partner looks at me like, how do you know this? But I'm always looking at everything that comes to market. Right. You know, I'm just I'm curious. So I, th I think um, I do a lot of reading in the mornings. You know, I look at all these news outlets and articles, all real estate related, really. Yeah. And so I tell young guys early in the morning, get up, have your coffee study the market, look at what's happening. Yeah. I look at closed comps, right? And so over time, when you just look at this over and over and over, you know where something should be. Right. I'm not always right, but you know, I could, I could price a deal. Yeah. You know? Every time I send you one, you're like, uh, pretty like, it like takes you about a minute to give me a price. <laughs> so, um, no, just, uh, just a lot of research. Yep. All right, man. Thank you very much for sitting with down with me this morning. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was awesome. We'll, we'll do it again. We'll do it again. All right. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.